Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In this next part of our exclusive special series with Michael Sikora, founder and director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House, we zoom in on whether the U.S. has a military competitive advantage over China. Following the recent shootdowns of a Chinese spy balloon and three mystery objects, talks of a hot war and how each side is shaping up are dominating headlines. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Uh, my pleasure, as always. So last time we were talking about the inevitability of a hot war between the U.S. and China. But I'm curious how we got here and how the two countries are stacking up right now. Does one side have a bigger military advantage, for example? Uh, that's a good question, and it's a very complex question, okay, as always, right? Because that's one of the things, when it comes to China, it's very, very complex. And that's one of the things that people don't understand. We're used to measuring it in simple terms. And actually, that's one of the things that's gotten, gotten the United States into problems with China. Okay. As, as talking just, first of all, just from a military, well, not just from a military, but mainly from a military perspective, over the last several years, DOD and the decision makers have shifted how they've defined competitive advantage. Okay. In terms of, you know, in many cases it's number of ships. Or, for example, it's we, they don't have any uh, aircraft carriers, we've got several aircraft carriers, so in, so in the oceans we've got the competitive advantage. But then it's like, well, they got an aircraft carrier, so it's not just if they've got an aircraft carrier, it's how many they've got. Well, they've got quite a few now, we're almost matching us, so it's not just that, it's what we've got on the aircraft carrier. That's one of the things about technology strategy, and strategy in general in many cases, is you continue to convince the adversary, reinforce, that you're not that much of a threat. And from a U.S. perspective, backing down on what that threat is and redefining it as a way to save face, to stay comfortable, and things like that. Let me give you an example out of the economics, commercial sector, which is very classic of this. It's classic of how China is operating in this respect, is that General Motors, the U.S. auto manufacturer. If you look at a U.S. auto manufacturer, let's take GM, my family have been there for three generations, the profit levels are significantly greater the higher you go up. So if you look at a very subcompact car, it's a couple percent, okay? You look at a Corvette or a big Cadillac, it's like 10, 15, 20%. And when you look at the accessories, it's a massive markup. So if you look at how the U.S. auto industry lost, it's when foreign players came in and said, you know what? We're just going to produce these small little tin cans. Nobody wants them. And GM said, look, if you're dumb enough to produce it, we're smart enough to let you have it because our profit margins are so slow, so little. Okay. But then those little cans become a little more sophisticated, eat up a little more of the market. And GM, of course, and this comes from family history that I know,
If you look at so many of the debates going on on how we address a hot war with China, it comes from a, from a premise which doesn't make a lot of sense, which is that we do have a competitive advantage. Zooming in on the part on how the intelligence agency seems to have been misjudging uh, China's rise in all these different areas, does it come down to, say, the definitions or just looking at the wrong factors, or how do we make sure we start getting that right? The way the Americans see the way the game is played in competition when it comes to technology is that it is a basically an R&D foot race, okay? Put in simple terms, what that means is both sides, uh, the, the, the quote, the correct way to compete is both sides identify their targets, okay? And the Americans say, well, if you're smart, you're gonna have the same targets we do because that's what dictates the future competitiveness, right? So the, the targets are quantum AI, you know, the big magical ones. And then the way the, ga the game is played is that once you've identified the targets, you go to the laboratory, you put the laboratory researchers to work, you give them a lot of money, preferably more money than the other guy, China, and then they put on their blinders and rush to the finish line to get the breakthrough first. Okay? But that's not what China's doing. But yet, if you look at Army Futures Command and things like that, they're from the premise that basically we're in an R&D foot race. He who gets the, the breakthrough first wins, number one, and the way to get the breakthrough first is spend more money than the other side. So if China, if we spend a billion dollars and you know, China spends $1.5 billion, then we're gonna increase our money to $2 billion and get the finish line first. But as we've talked about, China is engaging in a game of worldwide technology, offensive, defensive, exploitation chess. So they're exploiting technology in a very fluid, dynamic way. As we talked about, they got 30 years of putting all these paths in place worldwide to acquire the technology they need, to acquire all the other resources they need, and to put the influence in place, okay? So they're playing this very adroit game of 
technology exploitation, exploitation chess that they're drawing from everybody worldwide. We're from the premise that basically it's an R&D foot race and we got to sit here and just, you know, buckle down in the lab a little bit harder, give them a little more money. So if China is drawing from everybody in the world, offensively and defensively, which means they can acquire what they need and they can block us from acquiring what we need, okay, from an, an ally or something like that, and we're sitting mainly with indigenous development with a little bit of, maybe we'll talk a little bit with our NATO allies, and their paths include pulling from us, how can we win? Because they're pulling from everybody, including us. We're doing things almost in, indigenously. So now it comes to the intel community. They're, they're basically estimating from the same premises that it's an R&D foot race, we look at what the capabilities are, what they should have in 5, 20 years, and it's not that much. But what they're not taking into consideration, they know that China, you know, they've got a little here, they've got a little bit here, but they don't understand and take into consideration this massive chess game that's going on that has its tentacles in every corner of the world, and that's what's enabled them to field a, um, an aircraft carrier five years sooner than uh, the entire intelligence community estimated they would. That's happened time and time and time again because they're looking at the core is R&D. Look at their R&D. Well, they dabble around the edges, a little bit of theft, but it's the core. No, and the other thing is, as we talked about before, Theft is a small, small portion of what they do in their acquisition requirement maneuvers. You've got that full range from licensing, gray market, uh, acquisition by law when you go into China, all that full range of ways. But the U.S. intel community will tend to look at, okay, what China does is indigenous development with theft towards the high-tech, and that's about it. But again, full range of mechanisms of acquisition in a mosaic of direct and indirect paths, and they're looking at high-tech to low-tech to medium-tech. That is how they're able to hoodwink the intel community time and time again. That was Michael Sikora, founder and director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. And after the break, we continue our exclusive special coverage with him on how China has been catching up in terms of numbers and what that means in terms of war readiness. That and more in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. We continue our exclusive special coverage with Michael Sikora, founder and director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House, on how China has been catching up in terms of numbers and what that means in terms of war readiness. Going back to earlier when you mentioned how we're looking at, okay, the U.S. has this amount of ships and then maybe China's catching up in the numbers game. And then your point about the R&D race, it seems, you know, there was a recent unveiling of the latest, say, fighter jet in the U.S. And 
How much does it come down to just the sheer numbers, but also quality? Because we've had all these reports coming out of former pilots, either in the U.S. or the, in the U.K., teaching Chinese pilots different tricks. So how much does it come down to the gear itself and the numbers there, and then the people behind it? Uh, got to look at it holistically. I mean, if we, if we talk about technology, what most people don't understand is technology is equipment, material, and know-how, skills. So when we look at China's techno national technology strategy, you know, they have this initiative to acquire the best minds from around the world, okay? And again, as we've talked about, the key word here is holistic, unified effort. So efforts like bringing in the... Um, uh, fighter pilots for training from around the world, the UK, a lot of those are coming in there to help train them. That's know-how, that's part of technology. When we talk about this effort to get the greatest minds from around the world, that's know-how. So it's all part of a national technology strategy and there's no way to separate. I mean, as Americans, we're taught to what's the key thing, biggest bang for the buck sort of a thing. And China looks at it holistically about, okay, to consistently increase the competitive advantage on all the various competitive domains, environments, what we've got to do is we've got to make all these little steps, these big steps, whatever, in equipment, material, and know-how, but do it in a unified fashion, in a very fluid, such that if we get blocked here, we just go over here, and this and this. Because every technology is comprised of equipment, material, and know-how. So some is very know-how dependent, some is very equipment dependent, some is very balanced, but all of them can provide a competitive advantage. So as we've seen, it may be that their fighters on hardware are not quite up to par with the US because of some blockage or whatever. So they get the know-how from the fighters, which allows them to overcome some of the uh, deficiencies in the hardware. But that doesn't mean they give up on the hardware. Oh, they're going to continue to play and work in that to acquire the technology. And again, acquire does not mean theft. Acquire could be indigenous development, could be licensing, whatever, to increase the capabilities of the fighters. But in the meantime, they've gone, because they were blocked there, they've gone over to the software side in the know-how, in the training. So it's a unified effort. And as is taught at Harvard Business Review, or Harvard Business School, it's what's your biggest bang for the buck? So what, how can we get the, if we look at the bell curve, classic bell curve, where is that sweet spot that you can get the biggest results for the lowest amount of resources? And that's part of the big problem. Because what happens is we're looking, because our resources are, quote, limited in terms of Im improving our competitive advantage and countering theirs, we go, what's the hot thing? Well, it's the most critical technologies. It's the leading edge technology, okay, and it's the hardware. So we're going to protect that and we're going to pour a ton of money into R&D, okay. But China's saying they're saying, okay, we may get a little bit behind in that or we can't catch up with you. But here's all the other technologies that also will generate a competitive advantage, like training for the pilots. Okay, give you an example. In the Soviet times, people used to laugh about the Soviet computers. They were archaic. And when it came to nuke weapons and things like that, they said there's no way Soviets can match us on this. But if you ever saw the theory they had 
they could do more with an old 386 computer than we could with a supercomputer in some cases because their theory was so much more advanced than ours. But yet when the Intel community would look at them from the, I hate this term, the lens of the United States, okay, and there's another term for it, they would look at it as, well, where our competitive advantage is based upon our, you know, supercomputers, and if they don't have the same thing, they're behind, they're behind us. So if they, we looked at the Soviets, and they're like, well, they're, they're using 386s. They can't be that good. But we didn't look at their theory. The theoretical aspect of what they were pushing for sonars and the subs and all this other stuff was kicking our butt because the theory was much, much better than us, ours, and they didn't use, need much computational capabilities to produce better results than we had gotten. So in that scenario, it's not just underestimating the adversary, but also looking at the whole picture wrong, right? Because I think also when it comes to the Soviet Union, the US at the time had the most advanced encryptions and everything, but the Soviets were still cracking everything because they just put a little thing under the typewriters <laughs> and got everything before it was even <coughs> encrypted, yep. right? So it's like sometimes it's a simple solution, but it seems right now we have all these different, say, I don't know, think tanks, government agencies that come out with war games planning this hot war scenario. And all the answers are always different. So going forward, what would be the steps to really make sure the U.S. can compete and win instead of, it seems it's going on this trajectory where right now it looks like the Chinese regime will win? That's, that's a good question, and one, one we answered for the Marine Corps. Okay. If you look at the DOD process for decision making right now, it's totally upside down. And what we mean by that is we basically identify the bad guys, China, for example, and then we try to guess what their capabilities are going to be by looking at their trajectory of R&D, basically. And then we try to come up with a, a military strategy that's going to be their military strategy based upon our two assumptions of what our capabilities are going to be. And in many cases, we assume that our capabilities are going to be better and we win at the war games, what have you. Okay. The problem is that's upside down in the sense that the competitive advantage is from the technology space underneath it. Okay. So what basically happens, going back to the U.S. military strategy, is they identify the competitors, they identify what their capabilities are going to be, they identify what technologies they're going to need for the new GWIZ systems for this new strategy they came, a military strategy, and then they task the guys in the labs to develop it, and they assume China is developing the same thing, then it goes back to the R&D foot race. Okay. What you have to do is not start with the military wargaming, but start with the technology wargaming, okay? Where you actually look at it and say, hmm, we know not China's national technology strategy, which stretches way beyond the military. It's addressing all competitive environments, economics, the economic, military, terrorism, social, everything else, okay? So we know what that is. So what it becomes is what technology strategy does DOD have to have? to outmaneuver China's national technology strategy to generate what competitive advantages on the battlefield. Now, as we know, in Socrates, 
we determined that China executes their technology-based planning, developing their technology strategy, as a trial and error art. Socrates allowed you to do it, allows you to do it, as a concrete science. What's the difference? As an art, the connection between an action and the exploitation of the technology and the resulting competitive advantage is only vaguely known. That's why you know, the great painters would paint 50 copies of a picture until they got it right and say, now it's correct. Because the connection between the action and the result was only vaguely known. That's why it's trial and error. In a science, it's concrete. F equals MA, force equals mass times acceleration. Okay, that was, is Socrates. So now we can exploit technology with precision and accuracy. We know exactly if you do this action, this is the results. If you develop this technology with this capability, we'll give you this competitive advantage on the battlefield. Okay, so you can exploit technology with unprecedented speed, efficiency, and agility. Where efficiency is how much cost is it going to cost you to develop that technology or deploy that technology in terms of money, manpower, natural resources. Okay, So what happens is we can develop a technology strategy, DOD technology strategy, which is going to outmaneuver China in the exploitation of the technology. Okay, Which means now we are dictating terms to them because we can exploit it with speed, efficiency, and agility, they can't match. So all of a sudden, all they can do is try to react to us. So we can lay out a technology strategy which is many plies ahead, cycles, such that they're just reacting to us, and they can't react fast enough in order to counter the competitive advantage we're constantly generating. Okay, but here's the other key part to that. We now know, because we have the initiative that we know in pretty precise and accurate detail what competitive advantage the U.S. warfighter is going to have at what points and times relative to what competitors in what scenarios going out 5, 10, 20 years. So now what happens is we can develop our military strategy on top of a technology strategy which gives us a very precise and accurate knowledge of what competitive advantage our warfighters are going to have in which uh, competitive environments at which point in time versus the way it is now. High uncertainty, we're guessing at it. The war games, like you said, different parameters, different results left and right. Okay, that's how we beat China. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure as always. That was Michael Sikora, founder and director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. Now that we've covered U.S. military competitiveness and readiness, be sure to tune in next week for the next part in this exclusive special series, where we'll tackle the topic of a hot war with China and whether or not we're ready for it. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. See you soon.